You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we have a massive industry heavy hitter in the room. It is Tanya Steinbeck, CEO of UDIAWA. We're very lucky to have her in. We've had Fenno Bryan, who's on the Outlook Committee a few months ago. Absolute trailblazer in the industry and now we've got the top dog herself tanya thank you very much for coming in <laughs> oh no you're welcome trent's great opportunity i reckon we could have a two-hour podcast here but we don't have the time for that there's so many things that we could talk about when it comes to not only your life story udia in terms of what you guys do every day but geez what an industry we have and what a time we live in when it comes to development in perth oh absolutely it's unprecedented really what we're experiencing on so many levels look i think it's exciting exciting time with great change comes great opportunity and I think that's how we've got to view the challenges that we've got at the moment. That's right. I think the famous saying or the one that I try to stick to is with chaos is opportunity, right? Yes. And it isn't, if there was ever an example of chaos, it's been the last couple of years in Perth oh, development and planning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Let's talk about you for a minute if we can. (laughs) This is a very good opportunity to really lay down a bit of a trail for others to blaze that you have run over the the last couple of decades in your career because you are a shining light in this industry of one of the very few females who are absolutely at the top of their game in this space that should it's way too underrepresented there should be 10 more Tanya Steinbecks I think in Perth <laughs> and there's only a couple of you and in terms of women leading in this industry and I think it'd be really important to if you don't mind share a bit of your story as to how it got from Tanya the grad or Tanya coming out of high school to where you're at the top of your game today? So I guess I follow probably not the traditional pathway to where I am at the moment. I refer to myself as a high school dropout. When I was in high school, I had great intentions. I had two career options. One was law and the other was psychology. And I was 100% committed. That was what I was going to do. And as I sort of progressed through year 11, entered into the early parts of year 12, the opportunity to leave school and get a paying job Mm. was far more appealing to me at the time than sitting in a classroom. Whilst I never did badly academically, it just wasn't my thing. So I had the opportunity to go into the workforce and worked for Chellingworth Motors, which... uh, What a topical place it is these days. I know, and full circle now uh, from a development perspective. But that was my first full-time job out of school. And I worked for Kim Ledger. This is my claim to fame. This is uh, Heath Ledger's father when he was working in the Chellingworth Service Department. And I was the receptionist. It was my first job out of school and what a place to kick off your journey into being a a responsible employee, I suppose. You would have seen some pretty interesting people walk through that door. Oh, yeah, yes. And and really, I think working in an environment like that with the clientele that they had forced me to mature very quickly because I was dealing with people that have a lot of money, professionals, and I was forced to, Mm. I guess, behave in a way that was... Step up. yeah, Yeah, I had to step up. And so that was a really interesting and fun time. The opportunity came up to work for the Property Council. How old were you at this point? At 17. Yeah. I was 17 and Joe Lenzo, who is still work with today still and yeah. still walking around with the Property Education Foundation, he hired me as a fresh-faced 17-year-old and at that stage there was only three staff. 
at uh, PCA and they had probably not that long ago transitioned from being the Building Owners and Managers Association, the old BOMA, to Property Council and that really was, I would say, my time to shine in the sense that I had Joe's support and we grew from three staff to uh, seven or eight by the time I left seven years later and I started as an executive assistant to Joe and supporting events and other bits and pieces and then after seven years ended up business manager running all the commercial functions and um, yeah, bits and pieces. At 24 years old that's, that's a at pretty 24, big job. At 24 yeah it was huge. I absolutely loved it. I loved the network the people that I met through that industry and I, I still believe to this day that working for an industry body like that um, from a career perspective opens so many doors because you just build an enormous network. Well, yeah, there's some very powerful people in property. In the 90s, was it a boys club in property in that space, in that representation? Oh, very much so. So that's the thing, not only you battling that on a daily basis, but you're also still 24 years old. Yeah, and I was very conscious at the time that... I didn't have that academic, you know, piece of paper. That pedigree, yeah. Yeah, and so I went to Curtin University, got a grad certificate in marketing because at the time that was what I was most interested in and I'm a highly creative person, so that appealed to me. So I did that whilst I was working full-time just so I had a piece of paper. Mm, Sort of what it is for a lot of people, isn't it? Well, that's what it felt like to me. Was it more of a self-validation? I'm assuming not many people were asking you where's your high school diploma or where's your bachelor at that point in time you're 24 everyone just moves on but was it something that you and your just yourself had to tick the box I felt like for me to be able to progress from a career perspective I needed to show or demonstrate that I could in fact go and get an academic qualification Mm. if I chose to and out of curiosity, really, I wanted to understand what the benefits were of going to university and what uh, what it was like to have that more theoretical knowledge behind the practical experience that I yeah. had. That formal education. Um, the yeah. formal education piece. And look, I enjoyed it. Do I think that it really changed the way I operated in my role, which at the time was marketing? No. Yep. I think I but <laughs> But that's I think the case I went for most through, people, isn't it? Yeah, I went yeah. through the I went through the experience and, and that was just for me. Got the seven year itch, I think. I'd been there seven years and I had uh, mentioned to one of our members that I was looking to apply for a role in local government and, and was asking for a reference. That particular person said, oh God, what, what on earth would you want to go and work for local government well, for? Well, that's what I would say, to be honest, <laughs> but anyway. And I said, well, tell. okay, okay, well, what, what do you think? So then that person offered me a job and I ended up going and working for, for Stockland for four years as a, a project marketing manager. And that was fantastic, great experience working for a listed company and having some great projects at the time. It was boom time in property. So what what estates were you working on at that point? Back then it was Ashdale Gardens, which was in Dutch. And the the first, that's actually the first place I bought my first property as well when I was 19. Oh, there you go. So yeah, Ashdale Gardens, the boardwalk in Southern River, South Beach, North Coogee, and also worked on a tender which uh, Stockland eventually won on what back then was referred to Brookdale, but is now the Wongong precinct. What do you learn in this time at Stockland? I mean, what do I learn? Anyone who can sell vacant land on scale, on mass... Yep. has done their own degree. Really interesting because at that time it was a boom. So we didn't have to market. We didn't have to spend a cent basically because 
blocks were just walking out the door. So this was the time where there were campouts, all of that sort of thing. So effectively, we had to, to manage disappointment to a large degree because that's what it was. There's a little bit of customer we, service coming A back. little bit, yeah. yeah. And so we had to look at ways of how we manage the excessive demand in a way that we thought was more appropriate than getting people to camp out, which we just didn't feel was right for, for Stockland. So we ended up using a call centre and literally down to the second, it was, you know, the you know it opens at 9am, first in, best dressed, and we will literally allocate lots on that basis. Like and you're a radio station it, giving away prizes it was it felt like that and so that was the case in terms of our trading estates that I was working on the biggest challenge and the biggest learning for me was working on South Beach at the time there was a lot of controversy around developing that site there was a particular action group called Save South Beach which was headed up at the time by Adele Carls who had political aspirations and hadn't yet realized those Um, she would go on to obviously um, become a member for the Greens moving further down the track but we were constantly on the front page of the local community papers not in a good way there were a lot of concerns because that site was contaminated that it needed to be remediated a lot of environmental considerations and community consultation requirements and other things like that so it really took a different approach to be able to get through that to get through the approvals process and get on site I guess when we first kicked off that project we had a little bit of a combative approach, I guess, or defensive approach, particularly in the media, which just fueled fueled the fire. And so came up with, I wrote a community consultation strategy and we just opened everything up. We invited all of the sort of the key players in terms of the local community and the local council that were most concerned and we brought them in on site. In the side office, we had our environmental consultants. Transparency. We had, we had absolutely everyone and we sat down and we let them vent and we let them tell us what they were most worried about. We had all of our consultants talk to them and explain to them how it would operate and get a better understanding of what the implications would be, particularly around air quality monitoring, which was a big issue because we've obviously got the Fremantle doctor coming in over that site, potentially blowing some contaminated material over the residential area. Mm. And I would say within the first two, two community meetings we had, all of the, the concern that was being driven through the media died down to almost nothing. And it was because we were open and transparent. On the front and foot. Some people just foot. want to be heard. Well, absolutely, yeah. um, which I, I, totally, I totally understand. So I guess my, that was one of my, one of my greatest learnings was, was around being open and transparent and not trying to put things under the carpet and try and pretend that a situation is something that it isn't. Yeah, try and bulldoze your way through. Yeah, and look, to this day, we had uh, a lot of challenges on that site to get it to where it was. I was at the launch and this was probably just as the boom was coming off. Price point was anywhere from one to six, seven million dollars per apartment and we sold the vast majority off the plan on that night at the Fremantle Sailing Club. It, it was phenomenal. Wow. And I guess that was indicative at the time of, of the market um, and how hot it was. So the time at Stockland, it was a fantastic experience, great group of people, good to work for a listed company that has a lot of structure 
a lot of opportunity within it. I worked there until I was uh, got pregnant with my first child and went on mat leave. Yep. Three months later, was bored being at home <laughs> and had to do something. So I wanted to come back part-time, but unfortunately at the time there wasn't those opportunities at Stockies. Much less flexible than these yeah, days. Yeah, much less flexible back then, not the case now. So I left and sort of just started consulting back to Stockland, ironically, and, um, you know, other organisations. I studied coaching, executive coaching, social emotional intelligence. That spoke to my interest in this, psychology. This is a big move here, right? So you've, yeah. you've sort of papered over or something there where, you know, you've had, had a kid. Yep. That's great. But gone from working a PAYG job in a massive listed company and then overnight gone, hang on, I've now got the confidence, I've now got the opportunity to essentially be my own brand and consult back, start coaching, start adding value from a self-employed perspective. That thing that you just papered over in 10 seconds takes people years to get their head around and get the confidence to do. Was that something that just happened overnight for you or were you thinking about that for quite a few years? No, I didn't think about that for quite a few years. And I guess this is one of the things with me is um, I can be quite impulsive. (laughs) (laughs) I'm highly driven and I suffer from bright, shiny things syndrome as as my team know well uh, now in that I'll have a thousand ideas and I don't often think things through to the extent that I should sometimes and so I just jumped straight in I I looked at it and went what's the worst that could happen what's the worst that can happen I was meant to take 12 months off mat leave anyway so I can work from home look after baby I do say action is 80% of success yeah so I thought well why not exactly what's the worst that can happen and in the end thoroughly enjoyed the coaching side of things did a lot of consulting and coaching to small businesses, mainly around the sales and marketing side of things where they don't have, I guess, the resources to be able to hire a marketing manager in-house, but they really need somebody to come in and sort of look at the business in its entirety. And I worked mainly with smaller smaller businesses who, with owners who were stuck being, I guess, operators of the business, but just wanted to own the business. Well, I'm assuming a lot of these businesses, their skill set probably lies more in the planning, the development, the engineering side, but maybe you don't have the skills to sell. That's a lot of businesses, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't just in the property arena either. It was other organisations. It was uh, uh, mobile windscreens and tree farm. And, (laughs) you know, it was just, it was random businesses. Businesses that are probably built on the technical prowess. Exactly. But then don't know how to represent themselves or optimise the product that they've created. Yeah. And to also, I guess, get the business set up from a systems and a process perspective so that they have the confidence that it can operate without them having to be there. Mm. And that was a game changer for the owners that I worked with was they didn't want to have to be in the business. They wanted to be able to take holidays. They wanted to be able to take time away and know with confidence that the business was going to be fine um, without them being there. I guess there's still a gap here. So the next step, uh, it ended up becoming probably too much to be able to manage. And I got pregnant with my second child during this period. And I ended up doing some work for Mervac in the marketing space uh, on a project called Caratha City of the North, which was a joint venture project with um, the state government, which was Landcorp back then. Was this when Evan Campbell was CEO? Yes. And so we had Evan, Kim Lawrence, Dean Mudford. They were all sort of, you know, the senior the senior guys at Mervac at the time. And so I was just consulting to them at that point and their need grew beyond, I guess, what my current 
sort of engagement with them was. And so I made a decision to work for Mervac exclusively back in a project marketing role, which was fantastic. So to be able to work on a project like Caratha City of the North, and that was part of the Pilbara City's focus back then, the previous government. It still stands out as the biggest building oh, yes. in Caratha, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. That was a fantastic opportunity to work in the region like that and on some, some other really exciting projects that are, you know, really amazing legacies today, like the Peninsula Project in, in Burswood and Leighton Beach. So mm-hmm. that was great. Did that for a couple of years and I guess I got to the point where I felt like I wanted to make a difference. I sort of turned 30, which to me, that was a that was a big milestone for me. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, just giving that point there to for the involvement and the experience that you have built, that intellectual capital you've built by the age of 30. I'm looking forward to the next few years. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, here we go. <laughs> I'll try and do it quickly. Um, turned 30, third of a life crisis, midlife crisis yes. almost, I suppose. Had my kids and just thought I really want to be able to give back and a role came up with the Department of Housing or Housing Authority at the time and I thought I could add a lot of value in that space by bringing in I guess a commercial more of a commercial background and from a marketing perspective looking at the challenge of the poor perception of public housing Mm. and how you could try and shift those perceptions um, to the benefit of the people that, you know, the government looks after. Did the interview process, which I thought um, publicly listed recruitment processes were complicated, try applying for a public sector role. (laughs) Um, That was challenging. Um, The back and forth, the time it takes, the criteria, Mm -hmm. the KPIs, all that stuff. All that stuff. I envy no one involved in the (laughs) public sector recruitment process. So, you know, that in itself was was a learning exercise, but was successful in in getting that role. So I went in as a manager of strategic communications branch in housing. And basically back then, the housing authority was looking to better position themselves as, I guess, and at the time, they were the state's biggest land developer over and above any of anyone in the private sector. Right. Yeah, and they had the, oppor- the unique opportunity where they had the levers that they could pull around delivering affordable, social affordable housing across the continuum. And so for them, it was about really positioning housing authority as a, a key policy player in the delivery of social and affordable housing rather than just a landlord, when which was is this? basically what it was. So this was in 2014. So the dichotomy between what you've just said then in terms of the strategy of mm. what you were delivering mm-hmm. and where it is eight years later. Oh, yeah. We'll yep. get to that. Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah. I absolutely loved that role. I had a great team and worked on uh, what we called our opening doors, the shared equity campaigns, things like that. A lot of messaging, a lot of strategic messaging. And I guess what I valued there was the corporate executive really valued communication and Mm. making sure you get your messaging right and your narrative right and the authenticity behind that. I think it's a great idea. Market leader, you know, you've seen Albanese push a national policy that essentially copies this policy, right, in terms of shared equity style schemes. And there's a lot of these places where West Australia has been doing this for years. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. I, I think the only downside, and again, we can get to it soon, is that we just haven't done enough of it. We haven't delivered yeah. enough of it. Yeah. And look, the challenge, I think, back then was that there were differing views around 
whether or not the state government should be that heavily involved mm. in terms of particularly well, the delivery of affordable housing. Lovely, yeah. Yes, I did that role. With, so I was there at, uh, at housing for four years and I would have done the role I was recruited for for about 12 months. Then I acted in a role as the director of the social housing investment package, which we called SHIP back then. Um, it's called SHERP now. They love their, <laughs> they love their acronyms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Went on to take on that director position and deliver the SHIP program, which was at the time, it was the biggest investment in social housing, $560 million project to deliver a thousand new social houses, which was a mix of building 600, spot purchasing 200 and affordable private rental pilot which was the balance of the balance of the thousand and we had two years to do it it was incredibly challenging we obviously didn't have the constraints that we have today around construction labor but for me that role required me to work across the entire agency and one of the greatest disconnects I think within big agencies like that was the disconnect between the, the service delivery component which is those people that interface with the clients and match you know the social housing need to the appropriate property and the actual commercial component of the business, mm. which was the development component. It's so, always yeah. at loggerheads with itself, right? Because well, at the end of the it's day, challenging. It, it, there should be a, a mission statement that encompasses and sits on top of all other criteria, and that is simply to deliver yeah. regardless of the commerciality of it because yeah. it is a long-term development. Whether it's not commercial now, it will be commercial in 20 years' time. Yes, right? yep. So that brings you to 2018? Yeah, and then... UDIA job came up and I thought, well, that's a a reasonably good opportunity for me given my work with the Property Council, having worked in an industry body, understand how that works, already know the vast majority of people in the industry, but also understanding the political and government lens, which is particularly important in a role like the one that I'm doing now. And the marketing and comms experience and and qualifications you've got. Yeah, this opportunity came up and yeah, I was really, really fortunate to, to get the gig so I'll be four years now in this job on in November. It's amazing how and I can do the same thing with my career so many people when they look back not at any point in time when you were 20 or 24 do I reckon you had an idea about this is where I'm going to be heading this is where I'm going to end up I'm planning that one day I will be in a role like that right but when you look back you can piece all the little puzzle pieces together and go yep that gave me that experience that gave me those connections that gave me that qualification this is my interests, put that all together and, well, geez, I am the perfect fit for this job. Isn't it funny how life works that way? Yeah, it is. I felt that when the position came up. It did take a lot for me to leave the public sector because within the public sector, as challenging as it can be, there are so many career opportunities. It's so diverse Mm. that I could have been a public sector employee forever Mm. but thought, no, look, this is a a really good opportunity. I'm very creative and I like the entrepreneurial sort of approach and having – complete control over my own destiny and in particular from a work context which is very difficult when you work in the public sector. Let's segue to UDIA. From your point of view, what is the mission statement of UDIA? Why do you exist? Our vision I guess is to create and regenerate sustainable communities for the benefit of Western Australians or Australians more broadly. So I refer to UDIA as representing, we are the community creators. Our Industry mem- body. Yeah, we're, we're the member, we are, our members are the people that create communities in all of its forms. We have a very broad based membership. So yes, we exist to represent the developers 
from our inception, which was basically a group of land developers that came together out of frustration of dealing with government agencies. And funny that, we're still... Still doing it. <laughs> we're still yeah. doing it. That was in 1973 when we were incorporated to where we are today, where the landscape has significantly changed. We have far greater focus now on infill, density, apartments. So our representation and our agenda has shifted substantially to accommodate that. But yeah, look, I, I think our our vision is to create great places for people to live, work, play, invest. And I think our members do an amazing job doing that. And they do that with the support of all of the inputs from planning, environment, engineering. Well, that's your body, right? Landscape, you, know, you rock up you know, at a UDIA event and you've got planners, development managers, people in, in the environmental and engineering spaces, um, you know, hydro, all these guys come together. And it's a really cool melting pot of, you know, you could form a development team. Yes. On a table of people sitting around having <laughs> coffee, right? If you go, all right, I want to build an apartment building, you could just look at one table and go, oh, I have all the people I need. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the point. The culture within our membership is very collegiate. It's interesting to contrast how our membership operates and the culture within it with others like a big family our members aren't combative when it comes to business obviously they look after their own interests and anybody would expect them to do that but in WA we are we really are like a big family everyone knows everyone else and oh yeah you you want to make sure that you you don't uh, burn any bridges Um, you, you look on LinkedIn right and it's pretty clear UDIA seems to have the most fun uh, when it comes to the sundowners and things like that, it's probably the most collegiate uh, industry body. There are bigger industry bodies, but yep. it's probably the one that seems to bring the most diversity together in a social way as well, which is important in this industry, right? Because so often we can go through a whole, whole project, talk to someone 20, 30 times on the phone and still not have a clue what they look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I would, you know, I've lost count at the amount of comments that have been made that the number of business deals that are done in that context, in the sort of relaxed, more social networking environment, is significant. And and it, because it's all about relationships. You know, humans are about connecting with others and mm. the way that we... Um, solving problems, right? Yeah, exactly. Solving problems together. You can't do it alone. And I think that that's also one of the fundamental, I guess, pillars of how UDIA operates is collaboratively and solutions focused. We can't solve the problems on our own and we know that. Well, let's segue into that. What are you guys focusing on the moment? What do you think are the big key factors that help to solve the biggest problems in WA right now? So for us, I guess we've got four key priority areas and we deliberately try and limit our focus to three or four big chunky items because you can't possibly have an effective impact when you've got uh, your fingers in too many pies. The first one is around housing supply and affordability and we have been Uh, working with the state government on how we can get a single source of truth on housing supply and affordability over sort of, you know, the the next five to ten years in particular. So what does the development ready pipeline look like? Can we all get on the same page and understand what the true land supply looks like? And that's just within the, the confines of the MRS, the Metropolitan Region Scheme. So we're not talking about sprawl beyond that. We're talking about within the current within framework, the current yeah. framework, within the current sub-regional frameworks. How can we just agree how much? Because that has to be a key point, right? In that, surely 
we're all in a space now where most of us agree we can't keep pushing those boundaries anymore. Yep. But there is still, there still has to be significant enough uh, square meterage there for many years to come for land developers to be able to do their job and to continue to add supply. But also, surely, I'm, I'm guessing part of what you're, you're moving towards there is a transition towards further focus on infill. Absolutely. Um, and so our greatest concern when you look at urban and urban deferred zoned land within Perth and Peel frameworks itself, 66% of that is bush forever. And that's urban deferred. So it can't be developed unless you want to change your bush forever. Yeah, it's which a is, false statistic. It, yeah, it's yeah. not going to happen. And 85% of the urban deferred land has some portion of a threatened ecological community in it. Yep, that can hold up development, stymie it for years. You know, there's examples yep. there where you might have an infill lot that might be a couple of hectares. Some some old ladies held out for 30 years while everyone developed around it. Let's say it's land style, right? Uh, and let's say there's, there's one orchid that may or may not be there for, you know, just in general in the area. Well, that might hold you up for a couple of years. You know, I've seen examples in SAT where they've developed POS around what may have been an orchid and then it turns out there was never an orchid there in the first place. <laughs> you know, these sort of things yeah. frustrate the hell out of land developers. Absolutely. And so it, it sort of links back to, you know, one of our other, you know, four key priorities. So, so first of all, we need a single source of truth around supply particularly over the sort of 10-year time frame. So Are we getting it? I think we will. I think where UDIA itself is driving it because you've got different government agencies that have their own data inputs into at, that impact forward supply and the Urban Growth Monitor, which Department of Planning operate at the moment, its methodology is extremely limited. It doesn't take into account things like environmental constraints, land fragmentation, infrastructure constraints, all of these things, which mean that within the Urban Growth Monitor, they will say that we've got sufficient zoned land but to it's 2050. it's totally misrepresented. Yep. Oh, we're, we're so far from that. And our concern is, I mean, you can look, just turn on the news, read the newspaper. You can already see the crisis that we're seeing in terms of housing supply. Well, you, you talk to environmental and bushfire for example, one of the biggest ones is that there's a lot of land out there still, but a lot of it's just not even accessible from a financial point of view. It would cost millions just to run a sewer down there. And given the fact that it's so far away, you'd then have to probably put two, three meters worth of fill in, retain the whole site, spend millions and millions more on that. You look at a place like Henley Brook. Henley Brook is, for everyone listening, just above Brabham, just below Ellenbrook. Now, that's an area that is prime for development. You've got Mervac in there. You've got the little group in there, progress developments in there. A lot of that's already been taken up. But a lot of the blocks in there are totally constrained because one, you got to get a sewer to it and you can't get it through there unless the fellow before you decides that he'll allow it through. And two, the millions that would have to be spent on just earthworks, civil works retaining most of the land that I think they would say is available might be available, but from a financial point of view, from a commercial point of view, is probably 20 years away from being actually ready to go. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's where UDIA thinks that it has a role to play in applying the commercial lens to a planning framework, a public policy planning framework, because they're not developing the land. Our members are. And so that's where we want to bring that conversation together, overlay the commercial realities, the environmental constraints, the land ownership, fragmentation, infrastructure 
to get that single source of truth and linking that back to the environmental constraints, what we don't have at the moment is a strategic assessment that makes it very clear what is and is not going to be approved from an environmental perspective. It is very subjective at the moment, I think. WAPC holds all the cards, they refer out to the Department of Biodiversity and then you sort of just got to hope that they're cool with it. And if they're not, well, you're stuffed. Yeah, well, one of the the biggest constraints that we have at the moment with the EPA, the Environmental Protection Authority, they've been hit like everyone else in terms of workforce Mm. shortages and the number of approvals that are being run through the EPA and not just from the development industry but the mining industry as well is really significant. We've also got the federal layer on top of it, federal communities of biodiversity like your banks, your woodlands and those sort of things. If it's possible, this is how it works for everyone listening, if it's possible that there is a community on your piece of land that might be deemed significant, it must get referred to the federal agency and it might take a year from to get back to say, oh no, it's not significant, you can go ahead. Yes, exactly. And so there's been a review at the federal level of the EPBC Act, which is basically the Federal Government's Environment Act that they use to make assessments about whether things should be approved for development or not. The idea behind the strategic assessment or what we used to call SAPA for short, was that effectively the federal government with a strategic assessment in place at a state level, will defer all of the decision-making to the state. So that means that you're not going through two different agencies at different levels. You're going through the one. They have the authority to make the approvals at a state level based on a federal government-endorsed strategic assessment. That's positive. That is what we've been pushing for years. We're at the point where we were very, very close. There was a lot of concerns around... um, I think there was a bit of scope creep about what that assessment would look like, who would fund it, etc. It's with DPC, Department of Premier and Cabinet at the moment. It was shelved when COVID came because, you know, obviously health became the priority as it should. We are now saying dust it off because Mm. as we saw the Federal Environment Minister, uh, Tanya Plibersek, releasing the the State of the Environment report, which was hidden by the previous government and not released – It's pretty dire. There are some dire things in there and the implications for the development industry are significant. It doesn't sound like it would be very helpful. Uh, well, look, it's for the development industry, it's about certainty. Mm. And so we do not have our heads in the sand around climate change. We fully accept well, of course, that that's a massive issue. I'm assuming what you're going to lead to is, look, there's a place you can develop land and there's a place you can't. Yes. Just tell us where they are. Exactly. And so with certainty, we can all move forward and plan for the future appropriately. At the moment, we don't have that mm. and haven't had it for quite some time. And in an environment we are when we're dealing with a new federal government that quite rightly has a far greater focus and agenda around climate change, that will translate into where we build residential homes in the future. We're looking at the impact of the flooding in the eastern states has already triggered reviews from a planning perspective about we can't repeat that mistake. We can't build in those places again. So what does that mean in terms of coastal planning policy, bushfire policy and other Flood things? Yeah. Floodplains, all these sorts of things. Um, well, well, you know it's what a big it means? Deal. It means more cost. Oh, it does. It absolutely means more cost. And so for WA, we are so fortunate at the moment to be the most affordable place in the country. Perth mm. is still the, the most affordable place, which is fantastic, but it could be very short-lived. It's inevitable that we will start to see price pressures. Well, it has to be, right? In any asset class, the economics shows that where the replacement cost of an asset increases, the market for the established asset 
must increase with it as well. Otherwise, further supply won't come on. Now, you know, talking to supplier, we just got a new build contract in yesterday for a triplex in Melville that would have cost 630 grand three years ago. Now a million bucks. Yeah. So that obviously pushes into the established market of, of just trying to get infill going. And we're talking about a triplex here, Tanya. Yeah. So you extrapolate that out to what CoreLogic says is over half of the developments that are ready to move on an apartment level basis, mm-hmm. multi-story sort of stuff, but they've all been shelved. Mm-hmm. What is the solution here? It is a wicked problem. A lot of our apartment developer members, depending on which market they operate, the higher end, more premium product that say Blackburns will develop very much... There's um, a bit of fat in it. They can well, still well, roll with it. Yeah, it's at, but it's at the premium pricing um, and your market is, you know, your downsize is very financially secure. Less sensitive less to price risk, drivers. right? Yep. It's it's far less risk. But when you get down to the affordable end, the margins aren't there with construction costs and labour constraints they as they are. Yeah. They were so skinny to yeah. begin with. Layer on that, the increasing requirement to include a social housing allocation in future apartment developments in certain areas. Um, Layer on that, the fact that social housing isn't even delivering anyway or hasn't done for, for the last two, three years what it should have been, the, the massive backlog that is there that creates big issues for the availability of construction workers competing against the private sector. Yeah. I really struggle to see any outcome, Tanya, in Western Australia that doesn't lead to huge price rises on all this stuff, just born out of the inflationary aspects of delivering yeah. both land and built form. Yep. The chicken and the egg situation that we're in is that we need the workers to come here to build the houses, but we've got nowhere for them to exactly live. Exactly right. And so how do you solve that? Well, I guess you can look at a quarantine facility in Bullsbrook and yeah. say you can go put them out there for six months. That's fine, but it's a Band-Aid mm. and it's a short-term solution. Coming back to, I guess, my history in the government is that you cannot just pull one lever without it impacting another component of housing Mm. supply along the continuum. You can't just focus on public housing at the detriment of affordable housing or private rental or other areas because you will distort the market. And so what we need is a systemic approach to housing supply to make sure that from crisis accommodation to home ownership, we're addressing the, the various constraints to supply across the whole continuum at the same time, not when the greatest crisis is occurring. And I want to get to the other three points of your four points that you guys focus on. But first, you know, I want to segue quickly into red tape, a big part of delivering, generally just delivering supply, a supply that's commercial and ready to go, it's profitable, we could deliver it, is simply how hard it is these days to get anything through local governments. It just seems in the last five to 10 years, but especially the last five, that councillors have become far more political and far more involved in planning situations with minimal qualifications to actually make these decisions. And it's become very much now to the detriment of supply. It's become a real problem in a red tape situation. And no further exemplified than the city of Perth voting to refuse the Rua move on John Street down the road from this existing facility. This is where anyone should be able to step in and go, are you serious, fella? The Children's Hospice in Netherlands. Are you serious? Who is voting for these people? And but the reality is these guys are decision makers and it takes then someone like Rita Safiotti to take time out of her day to go, 
yep, these guys are idiots, we'll come over the top here and, and deliver this because from a state perspective, it's important. It shouldn't have to get to that, Tanya. No, it absolutely shouldn't. And I wrote about this last week in the West Australian. I can't tell you how much flack I copped really? for that piece uh, from local government uh, representatives, well, of course. Uh, as, as I expected. But I think from UDIA's perspective, our second priority is collaborative, building a collaborative regulatory culture. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. And at the moment, we are very, very far from, from achieving that. It's, it's getting worse every year, Tanya. It is, and it is frustrating. It's like banging your head against a brick wall. But at the end of the day, this is why it hasn't changed, is because it's hard. This is it. It comes down to leadership and cultural change, and that is why it's so difficult and it takes a long time and we're not seeing quick wins. Mm. So from our perspective, the Minister for Planning has been, I think, one of the greatest leaders in this space that we have seen. I think she's been extremely courageous, very yep. brave. Agree. A high-performing female in a male-dominated industry and she has absolutely done the right thing in so many places where a lot of people would never have had the bravery to step over the mark, create the SDAU, step on Nedlanders to say, nope, this is the policy you're going to have if you can't decide for yourselves. This is leadership. Oh, it is. And I think from my perspective, inevitably this current government is going to be in for at least another one, maybe two terms. Probably a decade at least. You know, um, so we have... The change she could make. Oh, exactly. And I guess this is a very, very rare occurrence in that you don't often have consistency at a state government level for such a long period of time. Mm. And the systemic change within the public sector, including local and state, is desperately needed, but it needs longevity, it needs consistency, and it needs strong leadership. And I think that we have that in the state government space. The challenge and the opportunity is for us to work more collaboratively with our local government partners to make sure that we are delivering what needs to be delivered for the community to benefit rather than specific interest groups. I reckon 10 years ago, Colin Barnett tried to amalgamate these local governments. Uh, I don't think about where we would be today if that happened. I do too. I think a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. I think this current government have stayed away from that and, and probably quite rightly too. But I think that's why you will see greater state government intervention in planning decisions because it's not happening Mm. the way it should happen in some areas. We've got some fantastic local government authorities out there. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of really good ones. A lot of really good ones. It's that, you know, you normally talk about, oh, it's the minority. Mm. It's probably not though. Minority of local governments that are letting, I think, the community down in that there's probably half of the local governments that are doing a really good job and half the local governments that are really letting a lot of people down from a city and a council perspective. And it's, we're not here to name names, but mm. um, that's the problem is when it gets that far into uh, stymieing, you know, what is one of the most important basic needs of all of us, housing, someone needs to step in. And the minister has done, I think, all she can, but we probably need another five times that amount of involvement to be able to rationalise the processes of delivering the most chronic issue we now have, which mm. from one basis it leads to the massive homelessness issue we have. And from the other, on the other side of the spectrum, leads to what will become an affordability issue. People complain about how unaffordable it is now. Sorry, guys, we are the most affordable state in the country. I don't think there's a perspective really that appreciates how Sydney-like it could get. Mm. And the way that people in Sydney who make the same income as us, by the way, living right now, you see all the stuff coming out of the AFR. Christopher Joy always talking about how it's doomsday in Australia, but really over there when it comes to disposable income and how hard it is for people to afford interest rate rises. 
we're lucky. We hear it, creates a bit of confusion, but it doesn't really affect us anywhere near to the level that it does over there when you've got three times the mortgage that we do. That's when you're in a big problem, right? Yep. That's where you're going in Perth if you can't sort this out. You're in the same position as Sydney where it takes two, three years on average to get an apartment development approved. We're going that way. And it takes people as, you know, as influential as yourself, for example, Tanya, to have those pipeline discussions with someone as influential as Rita Safiotti, otherwise nothing happens. No, it doesn't. And I think there's a fundamental shift that I think we're on the precipice of, which is considering housing as essential infrastructure. We've never done that. It's always been considered an investment, a tax benefit, uh, capital gains, you know, all, all of these sorts of... A profit-making scheme. Pro- exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what... It's a wealth creation mechanism. But and it's not just that, is it? No, no. It's a, it's multifactorial. There's there's right. so many different... You worked in the Department of Communities. Oh, I know exactly it what is it's a, like. It is a social need. It is a social need and it is essential infrastructure. Everybody needs a roof over their head. Unfortunately, in Australia, for a whole range of reasons, we've got to the point where the this morning, listening to the radio after the latest census, you know, there's a million vacant houses on census night with the homelessness rates that we have. You and solve that overnight, don't you? Well, <laughs> interestingly, you know, these are the Airbnbs, these yeah. are the holiday homes, these are the investments that are not tenanted. It is just a moral disaster that we have that level of vacancy and under-occupation in our housing system. What do you system. do? Do you tax Airbnbs? Is that what you how do you get them to maybe think about putting it back into the rental market? Well, I think we need to look at it's all the options. It's a pretty profitable system. That, and that's why people do Airbnb because overall, especially down you know, in the holiday areas, it becomes extremely profitable for these. But and these are areas that have minimal supply in the first place. Exactly, right? exactly. So I think I've covered three of them. So the first one was the single source of truth on housing supply and how much we actually have. The second was a building a collaborative regulatory culture with you know state and local government we just spoke about. The third was the need for a strategic environmental assessment Mm. so we know what we can and can't develop. And the last one is really around getting a considered approach around delivery of infrastructure to unlock housing supply. And this is not about Metronet. This is not about Infrastructure WA's state infrastructure strategy. Whilst I think that when it gets there, we'll have influence over how we develop residential land in the future. It's about understanding what the lead infrastructure requirements are to open up housing supply. So there's lead and lag infrastructure and the lag infrastructure is things like waiting until you've got the the freeway clogged up for kilometers before you add an extra lane, yeah, right? I that mean that's lag. That's that's 100%. that's coming in at the at the last minute and fixing a problem. What we're talking about is if we had that sewer connection if we had that whatever piece of power or water infrastructure it was we would unlock x number of residential properties over the next five years that is what we need that's where we need to be i have a massive smile on my face you can see tanya (laughs) right because uh, this is something i was thinking about only yesterday driving down the freeway looking at public infrastructure for example where transformers are every day i'm looking at sewer maps to understand what is uh, again actually available land to be developing in an infill space and you're 100 percent right the pipeline of supply that would open up if the state government was proactive in their supply of infrastructure with regards to pretty much just sewer water and power supply in these areas and then just charge the developer back at a rate to, to remunerate that rather than the other way around holy moly 
Yeah. It would open up so much opportunity within the existing confines of our city straight away. And the last piece of the puzzle I think I want to talk to you about is POS. And this is starting to get to a point where it is ridiculous. And it's on both sides of the spectrum. The first one is for the little guy doing a triplex in Stirling. We're supposed to be incentivized to provide urban infill at this low mum and dad level. And the policy allows essentially set on a state state government level that for more than five properties that are being subdivided on a lot, POS should be involved. If you have a POS strategy as a city, you can charge it from a triplex and above. Now, a place like the city of Stirling does that for three and above. City of Canning's got a draft one for a triplex and above. Bassendine, a quad and above. And what it essentially does is justifies their ability for essentially a money grab. A developer might put up his life savings, a mum and dad put up $300,000 to buy a block of land and develop that block into three units or three townhouses. He'll have a big loan of $1.5 million on top of that and he might make 200 grand if he's lucky, 250 grand in a flat market. You put POS in that and you then ask the developer to pay $80,000 of that 200 grand back to the council as a money grab for absolutely no value back because they're not about to go and buy land with that money or who knows where it goes back into the general reserve essentially now that what that does is it makes the project uneconomic all for a money grab so that's the, the lower level pos literally either stops people doing development at all or gets people to underdevelop and just do a duplex where it had the capacity to do a triplex so they can avoid pos it's ridiculous no one seems to be worrying about that and on the top end you now see a lot of the western suburbs local governments stepping in and retrospectively on an occupancy certificate stage now starting to money grab 10 percent of the land value of a two million dollar block when a developer has gone and done his feasibility got his approvals built the place maybe made a, a buck delivering urban infill and then being asked sorry you can't get the keys until you give us two hundred thousand dollars it is insane, Tanya. What this this level of money grab from local governments, where it seems they've all got around in a room together on a Friday night over some beers, and thought, how do we get some money because we need more money, and it all seems to be happening under the nose of the state government. Because I don't think if the state government saw this, they would think it lined up very well with incentivising urban infill. First of all, we agree with you. It is outrageous the way that it's been handled to date. The good thing is that the state government are onto it. This is something that not just UDIA but Property Council as well, we've been pushing very hard against the way POS contributions have been managed at a local government level, particularly for the apartment developers. They've been hijacked. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been assured that there, were, there are strategies being put in place to stop that from happening or at the very least stop that from happening at the death knell when, and stop high, you know, basically holding developers ransom mm. for, the, for the handover and release to the owners. All it does either way is add cost to the end buyer. If it's been put in at the start and it's a condition of subdivision, all it will still do is add cost because the development won't go to market unless it stacks up and it can't stack up unless that cost gets passed on to the end consumer. Mm. So all this is doing is transferring money from the end consumer, the downsizer who we're supposed to be incentivizing into these properties, back to the local government who don't need the money in the first place. Mm. It's unconscionable from my perspective, right? But it seems to be uh, an acceptable outcome when we all recognize that POS was brought into our framework for the peats, the stocklands, the satellites to make sure that when they developed a 100 hectare estate, there was enough space for parks and rec. 
it wasn't to be a money grab for local governments in urban infill. No, and I think the you know the other consideration is the the introduction of the medium density design code, which is imminent. There's a huge focus within that code, which will hit your clientele, the mum and dads, the people that want to you know develop the triplex sites and things like that, hard. Well, and it makes it nearly impossible to develop a triplex anymore, and those people won't be able to afford to do the class two style outcome that the median density code is looking for, right? Yeah, it's going to make it difficult. And so from our perspective, we always try and advocate for balance. You have to be able to balance the environmental agenda around uh, greater urban tree canopies because we all want the tree line streets. We all want want beautiful streetscapes. We all want that sort of environment to live and recreate in. The issue that I often find in my experience is it's easier at a policy level to apply a one-size-fits-all solution. You cannot apply a one-size-fits-all solution to greenfield and infill. It doesn't work. And so what we've been working with the state government as part of the medium density code is to say there are different considerations between developing in a greenfields context and developing in an infill context. You cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach. That's exactly Um, right. And so POS is a classic... Yeah, Yeah. POS is a classic example of where, given the opportunity, key stakeholders are going to apply elements that are meant to apply to an infill context to any context they like and vice versa. Mm. So we just need to make sure that the policy is fit for purpose for the different types of development and if that means it's you know slightly more complex or complicated or there's a different code for you know well there should be well there there 100% should be a code for developing infill which should be incentivized and there should be a code for urban expansion which should slowly be disincentivized because it's not good for this state it's not a good thing that we are the most sparsely populated city in the world Being an outlier is not a good thing in that space, right? Yeah, well, and again, I would respond to that in saying it's about balance because Mm. you you have to bring in the commercial realities and the housing affordability pressures into consideration with greenfields versus infill because the reality is for a lot of people, they cannot afford to buy in a lot of the infill areas. They just can't. Um, 100%. And so for our first home buyers in particular, they will radiate to the outskirts because that's where it's cheapest to develop. That's where, you know, it's cheapest to buy a, a home. And so until those market dynamics start to shift, you'll continue to see people gravitate towards the outskirts exactly. because it is just cheaper and more affordable. But I think the broader strategy is that it should be a transition. There should be a slow transition towards eventually, you know, we're a 150-year-old market, right? London's a 400-year-old market. Within the next 50 to 100 years, we're in a space where there really is no expansion anymore and everything is about how we're doing urban infill in the best way. We're not there anywhere near that yet, right? But it should always be... The point I'm trying to make is there should be far more incentives in the urban infill space uh, given the fact it is so much harder in the first place to get up. Yes, and I would agree with you. I think we accept that you can't uh, continue to develop forever. I mean, the Perth metro area is confined by the Metropolitan Region Scheme. I don't see it sort of getting any any mm. further than that. I don't. There's no intention to do that, and we get that. But as you say, we need to be able to deliver supply in an infill context much, much quicker because Mm. the advantage in a greenfields area is we can respond and dial up our response to demand a lot quicker. Very, very quickly. If we have a spike in demand and all of that land is gone, so in six... You can't do it with urban infill. Well, so six years, 
no more master plan communities. Mm. Cannot respond to any spikes in demand with that type of product because there's none left. Do you not think, though, that if there was a framework that allowed for that demand to be responded to by apartment developments on a broader scale, which is where we should be going, uh, you know, a lot more... 200 lot apartments in local townships you know what would be wrong with there being a 15 20 story apartment development on bayswater train station for example absolutely nothing why hasn't the zoning been allowed for it these are the questions that i think need to be asked right instead we zone it for a six level apartment building that's going to be there for the next 70 years and this is i think there's no forward thinking in regards to where we're actually supposed to be going within our development framework, right? It's it's a 20-year policy that keeps people happy for now. But really, we're going to get to a point where we're looking around going, well, we've got a number of sort of median density outcomes here, but we really need high density, but there's absolutely nowhere to do it. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the need for greater vision mm. over what the future of our city looks like. Bravery, right? And that's the thing. For some reason, the Perth market has this issue with, for example, height. But the only way that you can actually fix the landscaping issue, getting that green canopy, is height. But if you're going to restrict height, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? And that's where I yeah. think we're really struggling at the moment. Yeah, look, I would agree with you. And, uh, you know, uh, our offices are in Subiaco. I spent a lot of time in Subi. And, you know, you walk through the Subi Centro precinct and go, geez, we really undercooked this, yeah. didn't we? <laughs> um, and, you know, you look at Blackburn's one Subiaco, which is really taking shape now. It looks, mm, fantastic, looks fantastic. Great location. It shouldn't um, be on its own, though. It shouldn't. And then you see the transition now to the Subi Oval redevelopment, which is taking that into consideration. We'll have far greater density around Mm. it. And that's what I think the general community need to understand, that what we are developing today is is not for you. It's not for you. It's for your grandchildren Mm. and their children. That's the challenge is, you know, we've, we've got to bring everyone along on that journey. Tanya, it's the longest podcast we've actually ever done. But oh, it's, wow. It's okay, been, I can talk. <laughs> no, it's been so engaging and I really hope that the minister, for example, is listening to this one. She's been obviously been on the podcast a while ago. I really hope she's listening to this one because there's so many problems that have all been brought up in this, in, in this uh, last hour and, and hopefully everyone listening has got a lot out of your journey especially a lot of people that can look up to you and go, well, I can be her one day. But also just a lot of people out there who get a little bit of comfort to know that there is a body who's actually trying to fix this. And hopefully throughout all this chaos, there are opportunities for everyone. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Tanya. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!